Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. Children, before you get up and leave, Mr. Brett told me I have to give you this announcement. I am not allowed to let you go until I give you this announcement. Parents, our, our kids in Hubtown Kids today are going to be learning this very important lesson, and that is God is personal. We just prayed to a personal God. We are singing songs about a personal God, and our children will be learning about this personal God. So kids, you are released. Uh, Hubtown Kids, uh, if you are in Gray Station, you will be going to my right, your left, and Blue Station, ages three to five, you will be following Mr. Chuck and Miss Paula uh, to your right. Friends, when we think about the fact that God is a personal God, what we're thinking about is that God is not a distant God, that he's unconcerned with his creation. He cares deeply for it, and he desires relationship with humanity. My, my encouragement to you, parents, would be, as, uh, as the service concludes later this uh, afternoon, that you ask your children, what does it mean that God is a personal God? Uh, for, uh, I may not have said this, but my name is Chris Gomes, and I serve as one of the pastors uh, here at uh, Hagerstown Church. Uh, this will be important to know because the example I'm about to share with you is not a story about me, but of somebody else also sharing the name Chris. Now, our time together this morning really serves as part two of our sermon from last week. So if you uh, joined us last week, we looked at this idea about unsound doctrine in the church ultimately can tear a church apart. Now, the main idea we considered was that sound doctrine is for the church's sound living. Uh, so we looked at the first 10 verses in Titus chapter 2. This morning, we're going to com conclude uh, a brief study through Titus chapter 2, looking at another uh, subject or topic that can be uh, destructive in the life of a local church. Um, through this uh, intermittent series, we've considered things like conflict in a local church that can be destructive. We've considered how uh, uh, anger and gossip and unbiblical communication can be destructive in the life of a local church. We've considered things like uh, sexual immorality in the local church can tear a local church apart. The subject that we want to consider this morning uh, is a little bit more subtle than these things. Uh, whereas these other subjects that we've considered were more explicit, the subject we'll consider today is not as explicit, but just as important. And it's the subject of nominalism. Uh, I'll explain what this term means, but uh, before uh, diving too far, I want to share the words of one helpful pastor named Aaron Menikoff. Uh, he wrote a really helpful essay. I just want to share with you uh, the, the first couple of paragraphs he shared on this, and he starts it with a story. He says this, I met Chris in the late 90s. He'd been coming to church for a few weeks and expressed an interest in getting more involved. The more we talked, the more obvious it became Chris didn't grasp the gospel. He called himself a Christian, but he misunderstood the basics. I invited him to study the Bible with me, he agreed, and we went to work. After several long conversations, Chris matter-of-factly concluded, Aaron, I'm glad we've had these Bible studies. Before we started, I would have said I'm a Christian, and now I know I'm not. Unfortunately, Chris stopped attending church. His, de his de uh, departure discouraged me. Like the rich young ruler in, in Mark chapter 10, Chris found following Jesus too costly. He loved the world. Though I was and am sad about how our relationship ended, 
I'm grateful he finally understood what Christianity is all about. Who knows, maybe the gospel seeds planted in those studies have come to bear fruit in his life. Uh, Menikoff goes on in this article to say, when I first met him, Chris was a nominal Christian. So what is this phrase nominal? Menikoff gives a very brief description and uh, definition. Nominal is an adjective meaning being such in name only. Being such in name only, or even simply, so-called. So Chris was a so-called Christian. A nominal Christian, however, isn't actually a Christian. A nominal Christian is someone who bears the name of Christ, they claim to be a follower of Christ, but they don't actually know Jesus Christ. Jesus himself anticipated the presence of nominal followers. You can look at Matthew chapter 7. He knew so-called disciples would emerge, men and women who declare their allegiance to him, but don't have a saving knowledge of him. Simply in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So like Chris, these disciples that Jesus refers to in Matthew 7, they did many good things, but their miracles were not evidence of saving faith. Jesus says very clearly, a true Christian, one who truly follows Jesus, does the will of his Father. Those who truly believe, truly obey, however imperfectly. Saving faith is the result of a changed heart, and a changed heart produces a godly character. Uh, Maybe you are thinking of certain ideas of uh, something that is nominal. Um, Maybe you're someone who's a nominal sports fan. You know, you wear the San Francisco Giants baseball hat, but you don't really care about baseball. I don't even know if that's a real baseball team. That might have been a football team. Uh, Growing up in New York City, I remember um, New York City is many things, but it is what I like to call the land of the counterfeits because there is knockoff stuff everywhere. Knockoff handbags, knockoff leather goods, knockoff baseball hats. And that's a really big deal in uh, the neighborhood where I grew up in New York City because you could be one of two things if you lived in New York. You could either be a Yankees fan or a Mets fan. And that was it. It, Baseball was just a part of who we were as New Yorkers. And I remember one of the very first things uh, that I bought of my own choice, I chose to buy something, was a beige New York Yankees hat with the white New York logo. Uh, However, it was a knockoff. It wasn't the real thing. It wasn't an actual Yankees licensed product. And here's how you know that it's not actually licensed to be the real thing. Because on the flip side of the bill, that little holographic sticker's not there. And that's how you know it's not the real thing. So the real thing would have probably cost like $50 or $60, but the knockoff's like $5. You can buy it off the street. I was a nominal Yankees fan. I'm not anymore. Because I'm not actually a baseball fan. But friends, maybe you can think of some things that are just in name only. Someone professes to hold a certain idea or an ideology, but they just do it in name only because it's an opportunity for them to gather people, to rally, their, uh, rally support for their cause or, or their position or what have you. Well, the idea we're considering about specifically is this idea of nominalism in the local church. 
individuals and groups of people that profess to have faith in Christ, but it's not the real thing because their lives don't actually bear out evidence that they truly believe. Uh, And again, as I stated earlier, nominalism may not be as obviously explicit uh, as something that can tear apart a church like sexual immorality, for example, but this subtle deception can uh, can tear a church apart. I think a helpful way to think about nominalism is simply a disinterestedness in the God of the Bible. I am not referring to people who profess faith in Christ, yet they struggle to follow Jesus and obey his commands. We all will do that imperfectly. If you profess faith in Christ, perfection has not come for you yet. The the good work that God has begun in you will be completed, but probably not just yet. And Lord willing, for all of us, it will be a long time before that work is completed. Just because I want all of us to be together for a long time. But I think a helpful way to think of this idea of nominalism is a unique, certain disinterestedness in the God of the Bible. There's no sense of urgency. There's no interest in what God has to say, who he is, what he's done, what he's like. There's no interest in his people. There's no interest in his works. There's no interest genuinely in the Christ of the Scriptures. No interest in or concern for the gospel of grace. You may uh, have experienced this personally, where individuals were more concerned about their religious image that was publicly portrayed than the genuine washing of their inward parts through the gospel of grace. Folks who were more concerned with Christian values than they were the Christian message. Uh, One pastor, uh, Mike McKinley, he shared very helpfully that if you're a genuine Christian, you're going to possess these five things. Uh, We're not going to be perfect in these things, but these five things will be helpful for you to identify that you're a Christian. Number one, belief in true doctrine. Number two, hatred for sin in your life. The, The longer you're a Christian and the deeper you grow in the gospel of grace, the more clearly you're going to see the sinfulness of sin in your life. And you will, however imperfectly, grow a disdain towards your sin. Number three, perseverance over time. You will continue to persevere through life. Number four, love for other people. Jesus says that the world will know who we belong to not because of our theological egg-headedness, egg-headedness, but through our love for others. And number five, freedom from love of the world. But nominalism lacks all these things. Nominalism is an almost Christianity, but an almost Christianity is no Christianity at all. And again, if you're someone who is struggling with weakness in your life, which is all of us, This is not to say that you are not a Christian, but nominalism has no concern for God, no concern for the scriptures, no concern for obeying God's word, no concern for Christians in the church and for unbelievers outside of the church. Nominal Christians just don't really care about Christianity. Church is just a chore, preaching is boring, Jesus is just an abstract figure, the Bible is almost magical, but it has no power to speak to us, hell is scary, but you don't really need it, heaven is for good people, but who cares, whatever. 
At the end of the day, the nominal Christian is just not interested in the God of the Bible. But yet, they still claim to some degree that they're a Christian. Now, friends, is it possible then that in our American culture and even in churches all around us, Christian values have been more popular than the Christian gospel? Is that true of you? I've had to think about that deeply for myself. Is it possible that uh, we have valued the morality of Christianity and the benefits of Christian morality more than the Savior of Christianity, more than the person and work of Jesus Christ? Friends, you may be someone who is more tempted to find more in common with someone who does not believe in God and hates Jesus, but votes along the same party lines as you. But you actually have more significant in common with the brother down the street who baptizes babies, but yet holds to the same gospel of grace as you. Friends, Russell Moore in his book Onward, uh, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel, he very persuasively argues that the shaking of American culture is no sign that God has given up on American Christianity. In fact, it may be a sign that God is rescuing American Christianity from itself. He goes on to say, and I found this to be so helpful, and I hope you will as well, a church that loses its distinctiveness is a church that has nothing distinctive with which to engage the culture. A worldly church is of no good to the world. More basically is uh, recycling what Jesus said. If, someone has if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it ever regain itself? We are to be the salt and the light of the world. But if we lose our distinctiveness, what then makes us distinctive? That's, that's really what Titus chapter 2 has been all about. Relationships in the church are to be distinctive. The gospel of grace itself is distinctive. And if we have received the grace of the gospel, then the ethics that we bear out will be distinctive. So turn with me now to Titus chapter 2. As I said uh, earlier, this is basically part two of uh, our sermon from last week. And... Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. Fun fact, this might be my shortest sermon to date. Not by time length, but because the main passage of the scripture is only two sentences and we're going to spend most of our time on just one. But if you're new to reading the Bible, Titus is a brief letter written by the Apostle Paul found in the New Testament. You'll find that closer to the back of the Bible. The larger numbers are the chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are the verse numbers. You can also grab one of the black pew Bibles that are in front of you just by turning to uh, page 1184 there on the bottom. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
So brothers and sisters, this brief passage and this brief letter, which you could probably read through in its entirety in about 15 minutes over your morning cup of coffee, is written by the Apostle Paul to his pastoral protege Titus, giving him wisdom and encouragement and instruction. Friends, Titus did not have the kinds of Christian luxuries and comforts that we do today. He didn't have access to all of the theological resources and the libraries of uh, Christian information that we have in our fingertips right now, even on our phones in our pockets. Titus simply had sound doctrine and access to the Apostle Paul, which frankly is probably better than the various resources we have. But in this brief letter, the Apostle Paul gives him some very basic instructions. Titus was to appoint elders in all of the towns in which churches uh, were meeting under his care. Titus was to teach sound doctrine. And Titus was to be a model Christian for all these other churches to emulate as they followed Christ as well. And when we come to verses 11 through 15... This is a very important passage of Scripture. Uh, This is an important passage of Scripture that has been hugely influential in my life. I would recommend that you take the next several days to just read this passage over and over and over again. Highlight it, circle it, mark it up in your Bibles. But this is a poignant reminder from the Apostle Paul to Titus about the good news of the gospel. The gospel of grace leads to gospel-based living. And friends, this brief passage reminds us that the gospel itself creates a people who are both humbly zealous for God and humbly zealous for good works. So last week, we considered the idea that sound doctrine is for the church's sound living. And this this week, in this brief passage, we're going to consider something very similar. The main idea of our passage this morning is very simple, and it's not very creative. It's simply this. God's grace has appeared in Jesus Christ alone to save, train, sustain, and purify a people for his own possession. I'll repeat this one more time for all of you who are note takers. God's grace has appeared in Jesus Christ alone to save, train, sustain, and purify a people for his own possession. There's four realities that we're going to consider regarding God's grace. Here's the first reality. God's grace saves us. So look at verse 11. The language is very straightforward, very clear, very little gray area here. Paul says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So brothers and sisters, when you hear this phrase, the grace of God, what comes to your minds? When you think about the grace of God, What do you think about? What picture comes to your mind? What words come to your mind when you hear the grace of God? How often do you consider and reflect on God's saving grace? Christians need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. Some of us may be tempted to think that the gospel is just the entry point into the Christian life. And once we get the gospel, we kind of leave it there behind us, and then we grow up into all the real Christian stuff. And that's not exactly true, nor is that very helpful for you. Others of us might think, well, the gospel isn't necessary for Christians, it's only for non-Christians, because I've already been saved, and now it's, it's, it's the non-Christian's turn to hear the gospel. 
that's kind of true, but not necessarily true, not very helpful for you or even for your non-Christian friends. Brothers and sisters, when you look at the scriptures, the New Testament in particular, this whole idea of rehearsing the gospel It's just all over Paul's letters. I'll just give you a couple of examples. Ephesians chapters one through three is all gospel. There is one command out of 42 commands in the letter of Ephesians in the first three chapters. The first three chapters of Ephesians is all gospel. If you read the letter to the Colossians, chapters one and two, all gospel. Some of us, our favorite book is the book of Romans because Paul talks about some heavy stuff. Right? Our favorite preachers like to preach through Romans more than anything. Friends, did you know that Romans 1 through 11 is all gospel? This, this seems to be the prescribed method of, uh, of ministering to ourselves and to others, rehearsing the gospel, thinking about Jesus, thinking about what Jesus has done for us. If it was appropriate and sufficient for the Apostle Paul in the first century to rehearse the gospel to Christians, friends, Nothing has changed here today in the 21st century. We need to re-preach the gospel. We need to remember the gospel. We need to rehearse this over and over and over again. Not simply as just a theological exercise to make sure we have the right answers, but because in the gospel, we find the good soil for us to grow. And it is in the gospel that we find the power of God unto salvation. Now, Verse 11, if the grace of God has appeared, here's a question that we should ask, how? How has this grace of God appeared? Paul says this grace of God has appeared and it brings salvation for all. I think a helpful thing for us to do this week, uh, maybe you can do this in your D groups or your life groups after the service uh, today or throughout the week, maybe you can meet a fellow Christian for lunch, is to consider Ephesians chapter two. You don't have to dig super deep but you could just read Ephesians chapter two in the first few verses there. The, the, the second chapter in Ephesians reminds us that as Christians, we were once dead in our trespasses. Because of our sin, we were dead towards God. We were at enmity with God. We were in hostility against God, rebelling against him. But if you look at verse four, we find some of the sweetest words in all of scripture. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Friends, pause there for a second. Think about this. When you think about God, do you think of him as someone who is kind to you? I think oftentimes we look at God and he is just an angry judge who is looking down on his people with a whip in his hand saying, you got to get it together because I'm really getting tired of you messing up over and over again. That's not the image of God that is portrayed in Paul's letters. He is kind towards us in Christ Jesus. He is not an angry slave master over you, Christian. He is kind towards you. Verse 8, many of us probably even have this memorized. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, do you see how sweet grace is? Do you see the difference between God being gracious to us and God angrily demanding that we get ourselves together and clean ourselves up? Friends, grace is not some sort of magical, mystical power that we unlock within ourselves if we just chant the right words. That is not what grace is. Grace has appeared in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In his book, The Meaning of Marriage, the late Tim Keller very powerfully said this, how do you get the power of grace? You can't create this power, you can only reflect it to others if you have received it. If you see Jesus dying on the cross for others, forgiving the people who killed him, that can be just a crushing example of forgiving love that you will never be able to live up to. But if instead you see Jesus dying on the cross for you, forgiving you, putting away your sins, that changes everything. So church, how do you understand the grace of God? How has the grace of God appeared? When you think about the gospel, what comes to your mind? Well, I think it would be helpful to remember the gospel begins with God. God is the one and only God. He is holy. He is perfect. He is awesome. And he's made all things out of nothing. And not only did he create the stars and the moon, but he's made all of us. Do you know what's so special and amazing about human beings? It's not something in and of themselves, but it's that every single human being, regardless of race, creed, color, language, whatever, it's that they are made in the image of God. They're made in the image of God. You and I and everyone else who has ever lived, currently lives, or will ever live has been made in the image of God to know God, to love God, and to worship God. This sets Christianity apart from every other faith system in the world. But Christianity goes even further to say that while all of humanity has been made in the image of this God, we've all sinned against him. We've all sinned against God and we've cut ourselves off from him. Sin is every human being's problem. Your primary problem is not that you fell into a lover spat with your wife this morning. Your primary problem is not that your 401k is not performing as well as it did a couple of years ago. Your primary problem is not that your front porch is falling apart. Our primary problem is our sin with God. Our greatest need is not a little bit more love. Our greatest need is not that we can improve ourselves a little bit more. Our greatest need is reconciliation with this great God who happens to have the ability to create an entire universe out of nothing. And he has made us, and yet we have rebelled against him. Does he not have every right then to judge us? But yet in his great love, God sent his own son, Jesus, to come as the perfect prophet and priest and king to herald good news to rescue his people from their sins. Jesus alone, truly God and truly man, lived a perfect life that you and I could never live, lived the perfect life you and I still cannot perfectly live, and he died a death that you and I deserve to die as a substitute for our sins. We deserved death for the penalty of our sins, and Christ took it upon himself. But he didn't just die. He didn't just stay in a grave. He rose from the dead. Friends, this is the grace of God appearing. 
He rose from the dead. He showed that God has accepted his sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted. What then is there for you to earn? How then will you find favor with God? It is not going to be by picking yourself up by your bootstraps to prove yourselves worthy before God. It is not going to be to obey mom and dad because this is the way to behave. No, that is a byproduct of what we call faith. The only way to find eternal life is by heeding the call of Christ to repent and to believe. If we repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone, not in our own works, not in any of the works of anyone else, but only in Christ, we are then born into this new eternal life with God. Friends, if you are new to Christianity, maybe you don't even consider yourself a Christian, maybe you've been a Christian for just a couple of days, this is how we understand the good news. This is what the good news of the gospel of grace is. We do not earn this grace. We cannot perform well enough to secure the favor of God. We cannot prove to God by our good enough lives that we are deserving of his friendship and favor. Grace, by definition, is unmerited. It is the merits of Christ alone that secures the saving grace for us. And when you see what Christ has done for you, then you can rejoice in what Keller said. We are simultaneously more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believed, and yet we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hoped. Friends, is that good news for you? Do you hear this news and say, that refreshes my soul? That, that leads me to rejoice in God? Friends, that is the grace of God that has appeared to save us. But this grace that has appeared to save us has also appeared to train us. Look at our second reality. God's grace trains us. This, this one sentence continues in verse 12. This grace has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Friends, the order of this language is very important. We are not to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in order to attain that grace. It's the reverse. Grace has come that we have obtained by faith that now trains us to renounce all ungodliness. Not just some, not just parts, all of it. We are trained however imperfectly we may live to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions. The grace that saves us trains us, and it is grace that trains us to say no to sin and yes to holy living. It is grace that trains us to put off the old self and to put on the new self. Christian, if you have trusted in Christ, it is the Spirit of God who by grace trains you to resist the temptations to sin and to draw near to God. Friends, if you just recently graduated high school or maybe even college, you have a wonderful new adventure that awaits you. Uh, you've got almost an open book and the world tells you you can fill the pages of that book with whatever you want and you are going to be tempted to pursue all kinds of vain pursuits. It can be the vain pursuit of self-pleasure, self-confidence, self-aggrandizement, wealth, and the pursuit of greater riches. But friends, 
It is only the grace of God that will train you and sustain you to help you to live in a way that walks in wisdom and turns from the temptations to sin and to draw near to God. The greatest and deepest wealth that you can ever enjoy and engage in is the very presence of God. And that presence of God has been opened for you by faith in Christ. Grace trains us. Paul says the very same thing in Ephesians chapter four. In Ephesians chapter four, if you jump down to verse 22, we see that it is by grace that we put off the old, which belongs to the former manner of life, and we put on the new, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. How else does grace train us? Paul continues in Ephesians chapter four. It is by grace that we put away all falsehood and that we speak the truth to one another in love. It is by grace that we put all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander away from us, along with all malice. Friends, it is by grace that we are kind to one another. Grace trains us to be kind and tenderhearted and forgiving one another. And Paul, he just has this, this, this repeated pattern of gospel, ethics, gospel. It's just this constant reminder as God in Christ forgave you. If you have experienced the forgiveness of God for your heinous sin against him, then that very grace trains you to forgive others. Colossians chapter three, grace continues to train us. It is by grace we put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts towards one another and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Grace trains us to bear with one another. Friends, if you live with Christians long enough, you are going to know that Christians are gonna do things that either annoy you, bother you, bug you, or just flat out infuriate you. But by grace, you will be and can be trained to bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint, grace trains you to forgive each other. Again, you're gonna see this repeated pattern as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive Grace trains on to put on love. Grace trains us to have the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Grace trains us to have the word of Christ dwell in our hearts richly so we can teach and admonish one another and sing uh, songs together, whether that's in church or in a FedEx packaging trailer. You can sing together because grace trains you. Grace trains you in word or deed to do everything in the name of the Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, the whole idea of training might sound mentally and physically exhausting. It is heavy to lift weights to train your muscles. It is heavy to train yourself to eat well and to have a good diet. Friends, in this age, the church will have the spiritual need to train in God's grace, to have God's grace train us. We will continue to toil and to struggle in this life. But friends, there is coming a day in which we will no longer need training There's coming a day in which we will never again have to toil against our flesh and the temptations of the world. There's coming a day for you, dear Christian, that there will be no more trace of sin or death or evil anymore. We will no longer have to train one day, but that day has not come yet. When will that day come? I don't know. But Philippians chapter one, verse six says this, and I know this, just as Paul said, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So Christian, regardless of how much spiritual work you need done on you today, you can rest in the fact 
that God is not done with you and he will complete the work that he began regardless of how big of a project you might see yourself to be. Grace saves us. Grace trains us. Our third reality, God's grace sustains us. Saves, trains, sustains. Verse 13, this one sentence continues. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, the word wait is almost like a four-letter word. It is literally a four-letter word, but I think you understand what I mean. We do not like the idea of waiting. Uh, In our day of uh, next-day prime shipping, it's just very hard to wait. I remember yesterday I was eagerly waiting at the door for a package to arrive. But this idea of waiting is very uncomfortable for us. Uh, You might be in a period of your life where you're specifically waiting for something. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse to come for you. Maybe you're waiting for a new job to come. Maybe you're waiting for that offer on the house to get through. Maybe you're someone who has been waiting for childbirth or even conception. There's a sense in which, in the scriptures, where waiting carries this idea of eagerness. It's not just this simple idea of you just put your hands in your pockets and you just stand there patiently until it's your turn. But biblically speaking, waiting carries a sense of eagerness. Many of you have been praying specifically for me over the last several months uh, to find a suitable, meaningful job. Brothers and sisters, I have been applying for jobs left and right, and I have been eagerly waiting for good news which I have finally received some. So brothers and, thank you. Oh, brothers and sisters, thank you so much for praying for me. But early in the morning, I am eagerly looking in my, at my email to see if good news has arrived. Throughout the day, I am eagerly, eagerly refreshing my email feed to see if good news has come. Late into the evening, even in the middle of the night, I am checking my email for good news. There's a sense of eagerness and, 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 and a certain sense of, I, I gotta get this. Eagerness means your thoughts are singularly consumed with great hope and expectation. Eagerness drives you forward to the thing which you hope to grasp. It might be helpful for you this week to grab a cup cup of coffee with a member of the church simply to ask the question, how can we more eagerly wait for our blessed hope together? It seems like Paul is saying we're to wait for this blessed hope, but what even is this blessed hope? What is this language Paul is using? How are we to understand this? Well, friends, this blessed hope, it would be helpful to understand, is not the eradication of pain and disease that many of us experience today, although that is a part of our blessed hope. It is not reuniting with our loved ones who have gone before us to be with the Lord, Although that's a part of it, friends, I so long to reunite with Dick Miller and Tim Keller. There's a blessed hope in that. But that's not what Paul's talking about. It's not even the end of death and mourning, although that is a part of it. Keep reading what Paul says in verse 13. The Christian's blessed hope is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is our blessed hope. When the Bible speaks about the second coming of Christ, which it does so a lot, there are, it's mentioned close to 300 times, and when you look at the New Testament, every 13 verses is about the second coming of Jesus. 
Uh, which means implicitly and explicitly that the second coming of Christ is very important. But when the New Testament speaks of the second coming of Christ, it is not brought up for us to speculate about how, when, where, or, or, or whatever else. It's brought up to help us to live in the present with a great eagerness, with a zeal for holiness, and a deep trust in Christ. Knowing that he will return leads us to live by faith. Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, this is one of my uh, most favorite passages of Scripture. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Friends, ask yourself this question. Where is my life? If you're a Christian, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, how comforting is it to know that not only is the most important thing in our lives, our very life, in the very secure possession of Jesus Christ, but he himself is our life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Friends, grace saves us, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled lives, and it sustains us as we wait, as we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our life. But there's a fourth reality. God's grace purifies us. So grace saves, it trains, it sustains, and it purifies us. This one sentence finally comes to its conclusion in verse 14. Grace purifies us. Look what Paul says. Again, we see the same thing where he says the gospel, he gives us ethics based on the gospel, and then he reminds us of the gospel once more. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We are reminded again what Jesus has done. He Jesus Christ has given himself for us. Christian, Jesus Christ gave himself for you. That is good news. You may wonder, where is God? God is here with you. You may wonder, why is God doing what he's doing? He is doing it for you. You may look at the great darkness of life that is before you and the fear of death that may stand before you and you can rest and look death in the face and say, I have nothing to be afraid of because Jesus Christ gave himself for me. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us. 
This whole idea of purifying ourselves, it it carries Jewish imagery of washing, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. You can read 1 John 1, verse 9, where John reminds us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why has he done this? Why is he purifying for himself a people? Paul goes on to say, He is doing this work of redemption and purifying to create for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Do you see the the, the interesting language here that he uses? A people for his own possession. The phrase carries, uh, a people for his own possession, this phrase carries a sense of prized, treasured possession. Church, the local church, the universal church, is the prized, treasured possession that has been bought by the holy, sacred blood of Jesus Christ. When you look at the local church, you are not looking at just a mere accident. You are not looking at the works of man's own hands. When you look at the church, you see the very prized, treasured possession of God's, a people for his own possession. And what is this people to look like? This is a people to look like one who trusts in Christ and one who is zealous for his own good, uh, for good works. The grace that saves us and trains us and sustains us, it purifies us to be a treasured possession who are zealous for good works. And you might be wondering, well, Pastor Chris, what is good works? How am I supposed to do that? What does this look like? You'll find good works listed in the scriptures. But you might also be wondering, why should I engage in good works? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 would say that good works aren't just a simple add-on to the luxury of Christian life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, we have been created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared beforehand. Friends, you might not know what the good works are that you should be engaged in presently, but God does because he has prepared that beforehand for you. So a helpful exercise for us might simply be, Lord, would you help me to understand and see what good works you would have for me to do in order to honor Christ by faith? As one old confession of faith says, good works display our gratitude to God for the gift of his Son. We are not engaging in good works to uh, obtain his son. We engage in good works to display our gratitude to God for his son. Why should we engage in good works? 1 John chapter 2 reminds us that good works bolster our assurance of faith. Number three, good works are a means of encouraging other Christians towards greater acts of Christ-centered love. That's just... Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. Good works, according to Titus chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, they are concrete avenues for the church to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in our life and ministry. Good works silence critics who devalue the goodness of biblical Christianity. Uh, You can see 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 and 15. If you need one more reason for why we should engage in good works, 
Just look at John chapter 15, verses 8 through 11. Good works glorify God by displaying his work of love in our lives. Friends, God has made his grace to appear to save us and to train us and to sustain us and to purify us to be a people for his own possession who are zealous for these good works. All of this has been based on one sentence. I have one more sentence to look at. Verse 15. Paul tells Titus, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. Friends, in other words, this is the way. Keep going. Paul's instructions to Titus is keep going, keep doing this, trust God and keep going. Don't discount the scriptures and what you have been entrusted with, keep going. Trust God and go, trust God and go, trust God and keep doing this. This is how we keep moving forward. Friends, the main idea from the beginning to end, God's grace has appeared in Jesus Christ alone. We will not find this grace anywhere else. It has appeared in Jesus Christ alone to save us and to train us, to sustain us and to purify a people for his own possession. So I'll just simply conclude our time now with this. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. Father, we thank you for this grace. God, we thank you that you have given to us the grace of your son. Father, we thank you that we have not had to strive to earn this grace, that we have not had to toil our way into obtaining this uh, uh, friendship and peace with you. Father, we are grateful and humbled that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, can we find salvation from our sins and from the wrath of God for our sins. God, would you help us today to meditate upon your grace? Would you help us to rehearse the good news of the gospel to ourselves and to one another? Father, would you help us to encourage one another to do good works as we look to Jesus together? Father, would you help us to help one another walk and limp along the road to the better country that you have for us? that you have prepared for us, that you have secured for us, and that you will, by your grace, bring us to. Father, help us to look to Jesus by faith. Help us to see the grace and to revel in this grace for all our days. God, we thank you. We thank you for the grace of your word, the grace of your spirit, the grace of your people, the grace of your son. And we commit this time to you in, uh, in hopes that you will strengthen our faith in grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.